Today on our weekly mailbag, we'll talk about quarterbacks, the draft, and more ahead on the Locked On Jets podcast. You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And welcome. This is the Locked On Jets podcast for Wednesday, January 26th, 2022. I'm your host, John B. from GangGreenNation.com. And today's episode is brought to you by OnlineGambling.com, the place to be for all the latest gambling news and tips through the NFL playoffs. Visit OnlineGambling.com slash NFL to get the edge over the competition through this year's playoffs. Today we have our weekly mailbag. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions. Our first question is from David. Joe Douglas had a pretty bad 2020 draft, but his 2021 draft is looking pretty good. What do you think the reason is for there being such a difference in the quality? Well, I think sometimes we overlook the role of randomness when it comes to draft classes, because drafting is a very inexact science. There's a lot you don't know when you're selecting a player. I mean, just think about what teams have to figure out in the draft. They have to figure out how somebody's going to develop. They have to figure out how a player is going to adapt to the new challenges of the NFL. They're going to have to figure out how they'll adapt to bigger and faster competition, how they'll adapt to a more complex playbook, how they'll adapt to different coaching, and how they'll grow, not just in their rookie season, but over the next four, five, six years, up to maybe a decade. Very difficult to do, and you have to figure out how players may respond to various things. Beyond that, you have to hope that players don't get hurt. And you also have to acknowledge that sometimes uh, you're going to make a coaching change and that could radically alter a player's trajectory. There's just a lot you don't know. I think sometimes we overestimate how easy it is to draft. I think sometimes we, we overestimate how much these teams really know when they're drafting players. It's a lot of projection. And that means that pretty much every team's going to make mistakes. I mean, if you look at the NFL draft through, I mean, almost beginning at pick one, most players don't pan out, the, at least the way you're hoping they will. It, it's You'd be surprised how low the hit rate is, even at the top of the first round of the draft. It's really low. So almost every pick, I mean, or I shouldn't say almost every pick, but the vast majority of picks don't amount to anything in this league. And it's really just about finding quality players. So what does this have to do with the Jets draft class? Well, you know, any team could have a good year. Any team could have a bad year. It's kind of similar to how sometimes you have a team that's had a string of bad seasons and they put together a random playoff run. We'd like to see the Jets do that at some point. But sometimes it, you, know, you see a bad team just kind of have everything fall into place and they have a good year. And on the same note, sometimes you have a team that's been very successful in the league, very consistent. And they just have a year where nothing goes right. They suffer a bunch of injuries. They get some bad luck in close games. And they end up having a bad season, even though it's a team that's consistently pretty good. Well, the same thing could happen for front offices. You could have a bad front office that gets a really lucky season. It's a really lucky draft year. And ends up doing pretty well in the draft. At the same point, as the same note, you could have a team with a good front office that, for whatever reason, things just don't work out that year in the draft, and they end up having a bad draft class. I mean, even the best drafting teams have years where they get few contributors. And really, it's over only over the long run that we can figure out which front offices are good and which front offices are bad. You know, over a five, ten-year stretch, 
we can look at draft picks and say, okay, this front office knows what it's doing, that front office doesn't. But one year, randomness can really come into play. You could have a year where a bad front office just just gets on fire and they make a bunch of good picks, and you can have a year where a good front office just can't get anything right. That's just the nature of this thing. And now, do the Jets have a good front office that just had a bad year in 2020? Or do they have a bad front office that had a lucky year in 2021? We'll have to stay tuned. We don't know yet. So I, I don't know that it's anything beyond just the randomness of the draft, because the draft is pretty random. And really, it's only over the long run that you figure out whether a team knows what it's doing or not. Our next question comes from Tim. John, I understand next year's draft is considered to be a much better draft for quarterbacks. Considering the draft value of picks in a quarterback-rich draft, would it make sense for Joe Douglas to try and trade one of our top picks in a trade down that includes a first-round pick next year? Well, I think it always makes sense to try and get future first-round picks. That's true whether or not it's projected to be a good quarterback year next year. And listen, we don't know for sure how good the quarterback class is going to be next year. You know, heading into the 2020 season, nobody had Zach Wilson on their radar. Heading into 2019, nobody had Joe Burrow on their radar. Things can radically change. I mean, there was a point where Christian Hackenberg was projected to be the number one overall pick in the 2016 draft. So things can change radically over the course of a year. But in general, the league, I think, undervalues future picks. The perception is always that a current pick is worth more than a future pick. And... That has some logic if you're a GM, because especially if you're a GM on the hot seat, you need to win now, which means that you may not benefit from future picks. You know, you, you may not be around to, to make a future pick. So that leads to teams probably overvaluing current picks and undervaluing future picks, because ultimately, listen, a second round pick next year is more valuable than a third round pick this year. I mean, I think that's a pretty common, I think that's pretty, pretty obvious, but that's not the way the NFL teams value these picks. NFL teams always put a premium on current picks because that's where the incentive aligns for many general managers. So it's one of those market inefficiencies that I think you see smart teams exploit all the time. And if the Jets can get a first-round pick next year by trading down, and I'm assuming you're still getting a first-round pick this year. I'm, I'm assuming you're getting a. I'm assuming in this scenario you're getting a lower first-round pick this year in addition to a first-round pick next year. I think that's the kind of thing that always makes sense. But on the same note, and this is kind of like the the inverse of this, if you want to get a pick, you probably have to give something of value up. And this is one of those things I hear all the time. Is uh, I'll hear people say, if the Jets have the fourth pick and Hutchinson or Thibodeau is there, draft them. But if Hutchinson and Thibodeau are not there, trade down. Well, the thing is, it's more likely you're going to be able to trade down if Hutchinson or Thibodeau is there. Because then there's something another team will want to trade up for. There are two teams that are part of the equation when we're, when we're talking about trading draft picks. And yeah, obviously you'd want to trade down if a premium player is not there. But it's also less likely that a team's going to want to trade up if a premium player is not there. Because you have to think, what's the other team want to trade up for? So I guess kind of the inverse to this. And I think I still think you know teams undervalue future picks. But if next year is viewed as a good quarterback class. There's Then there's a case to be made that maybe teams will be less willing to give up a, future, a pick next year because they're also going to know that next year could be a good quarterback class. So that's kind of the inverse to it. But I think in general, yes, I'm always in favor. If you can trade down in the first round and get a future first round pick, almost always it's going to make sense. I mean, I'm sure there are points where it doesn't make sense. I mean, listen, if the Jets have to trade from like 4 to 32 
would one future first round pick be worth it? I mean, I, I don't know. I th- I'd have to examine that a little bit closer. But in general, most of the time, it's going to make sense to get a future fir- first round pick by trading down. Now ahead here on the Locked On Jets podcast, we'll talk free agents, we'll talk quarterbacks. Of course, we're hoping that the Jets improve their roster over the course of the offseason enough that they'll be in the playoffs in 2022. They're not this year, however, and the NFL is in the Final Four. At the beginning of the playoffs, OnlineGambling.com set me the challenge of picking who I think will get to the Super Bowl, and I picked Green Bay versus Kansas City. Seems like those were the two teams that were playing the best heading into the playoffs, and of course, many people were surprised. It wasn't just me that the 49ers went into Lambeau Field and upset the Green Bay Packers. Kansas City, of course, beat Buffalo in a classic in the divisional round, although I have to admit, I did pick Buffalo in that game. I changed my mind a little bit. I, after the Bills crushed the Patriots, I thought they were playing great. I loved the way Josh Allen was playing. So even though I picked Kansas City at the start of the playoffs, I thought Buffalo had a great chance to go into Kansas City and upset them. I think now you got to go with the, the home teams, though. The Rams and the Chiefs, I think that the Bengals are a team that's ahead of schedule, but I don't think they're on the level of Kansas City this year. I don't want to take anything away from them, but I... I'm not sure that this is really a team that belongs in the conference championship game. And even though the 49ers went into L.A. and beat the Rams the final week of the regular season to make the playoffs, I just think they're really banged up right now. You know, I don't love Garoppolo in this spot. I think think it's going to be the Rams. I think, sorry, it's going to be the Rams against the Chiefs. And we're all looking for an edge these days. And I'd like to thank OnlineGambling.com for sponsoring today's podcast. If you don't know already, OnlineGambling.com is a website dedicated to giving bettors the edge. Through the playoffs, they're providing you with the best NFL news, tips, and more to make your bets as informed as ever. Thanks for making Locked On Jets your first listen every day. We continue with our weekly mailbag. SpotTrack has a couple of free agent projections. Carlton Davis making $19.5 million a year and Marcus Williams making $13.5 million a year. Which one would you prefer at those prices? I'm a little skeptical that Marcus Williams is only going to make $13.5 million a year on the free agent market. He's the Saints' safety, an excellent player, very well-rounded, does everything well, and I think would be a really good fit for the Jets' defensive scheme. I think that that's a very good value, to be honest with you. I would take Marcus Williams at $13.5 million a year. I'm not sure I agree with Spot Track on that one. I mean, sometimes I'm wrong on these projections, and it only takes one team to change everything, but... Marcus Williams at 13.5, I think he's a guy the Jets should target anyway. I mean, he'd be one of my top targets, but I'd take Marcus Williams at 13.5 million today. If if he'd sign up for that, that would be a done deal. I think he'd be a perfect fit at safety for the Jets. Carlton Davis at 19.5 million. Now he's the Tampa Bay corner. That's awfully pricey. That's one you could talk me into, though, because I think he's a really good fit for the system. He is a good player. It's awfully pricey but it's one of those overpays you could talk me into just because of the fit only 25 years old so second contract not a guy you're expecting to immediately decline I don't love him at 19.5 million but you could make an argument to me if the Jets sign in for that price you could convince me that that's a decent move but Marcus Williams at 13.5 million I think that that's a really good deal our next question do you think the winning percentage disparity between regular season and postseason overtime games is a result of small sample sizes, better offensive talent, or fatigue among the defenses deep in the season? So this question is about overtime, 
And there was a, a, a statistic that went around this week that in the regular season, the team that wins the coin toss doesn't really have any great advantage. But historically, in overtime games under this format, the team that wins the coin toss has usually won the game. So there, essentially, there's a coin toss advantage in the playoffs that there hasn't been in the regular season. So what's the reason for that? I mean, I think it's probably random. I don't think that there's anything to it. I think it's probably just luck and things will probably even out over time. Listen, obviously winning the coin toss is an advantage in overtime. Is it an advantage that, you know, should win you the game 90% of the time as it has in the playoffs under this format? Probably not, but probably more of an advantage than it has been during the regular season over the last decade plus. But, I mean, this overtime system doesn't make sense. This is like vintage NFL. The NFL always takes things that should be simple it just adds these like needless layers of, of complexity to them. I do you remember a few years back figuring out what a catch was? Something that should be simple is always made difficult. And here's the amazing thing: this is this is the thing I can't get over is maybe the biggest driving force in the current overtime rules was a playoff game in 2008 between the Chargers and the Colts, where the Chargers scored a touchdown on the first series of overtime, and Peyton Manning did not get a chance to have the ball. I mean, that's the game people point to, but. Under the current format, Peyton Manning still would not have had a chance to get the ball. So, but it's not even it's not even that teams don't have a chance to get the ball for me. Listen, there's a different... I, I don't think that there's anything unfair about the current system, but I think that people lose the, the distinction between unfair and stupid. I don't think that the, the current system's unfair. I think it's very stupid, though. I mean, you, you, get, the ch you get a chance to possess the ball unless the other team scores a touchdown... But if, a defense, if the defense scores, a, that counts as a possession. But if there's an onside kick, that counts as a possession. It doesn't make any sense. Simplified things. I mean, I, I think there are three plausible approaches you could take to the NFL. The first is to go back to the old format, which is just sudden death. Pure sudden death, first team to score wins. I don't love that format because I, if you followed the NFL in the days where it was just pure sudden death, essentially meant that whoever got into field goal range the first wins. And I don't love that. I, you know, I don't love the fact that you're, you essentially have to get to the 30-yard line, and then that's the game, and then you're playing for a field goal. So but that would make more sense than the current system. The second option would be just, you know, play it like baseball. You know, every te both teams get an equal number of possessions, and whoever ends up with, you know, once you get a possession where both teams have a, the opportunity to have the ball, and one team has more points than the other, the game ends. Okay, that's logical. The third option would be, and this would be my preferred option, is just you know put 10 minutes on the clock, and whoever has more points at the end of the 10 minutes, just play it out like it's the fourth quarter again. That's the way every other sport does it. Basketball, you put five minutes on the clock. Baseball, you play an extra inning. You know, hockey's a little bit... I know hockey plays sudden death, but hockey's sudden death over time in the playoffs is the natural flow of the game. So just do it that way, or you know, in the playoffs, maybe you put, maybe you play fifteen minutes and you play like two two quarters of seven and a half minutes, two periods of seven, and then at the end of seven and a half minutes, the team switch sides. That makes sense to me. But this system, like, I mean, they just came up with some some random system, and it seems like they were trying to build the most complex thing imaginable, and it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, just get a real system. Get rid of the, stop needlessly comp making everything more complex than it needs to be. Come up with something simple for once. This should be a simple game. And the NFL just needs to... The NFL just need, feels the obsession to put ridiculous rules and caveats into everything. Our next question. Do you bring in a veteran quarterback with similar skills to Wilson to push him and replace him if need be? 
to keep the offense moving forward? I would. I mean, listen, I, I don't want to like be too harsh on Zach Wilson, but I don't know how you look at the season he just had and conclude that, that he should be the undisputed starter next year. I don't have a problem with bringing in a veteran to push him because, frankly, the kind of veteran the Jets would get, I mean, I don't think there's any, anybody great who's going to be available. The Jets would get a veteran with probably, you know, some degree of talent, but not a guy who's a big talent. And it's a the type of, the, type, the guy the Jets would get would be the type of player that any promising young quarterback should be able to beat out. If you can't beat that quarterback out, then that's a problem. I mean, I would equate it to Denver last year bringing in Teddy Bridgewater to compete with Drew, Drew Locke. Teddy Bridgewater is a competent quarterback. If Teddy Bridgewater had not gotten hurt in Minnesota all those years ago, who knows how his career would have turned out. Maybe he would have been a franchise quarterback. But he's not the type of quarterback any young franchise player should have a, should have trouble beating out. And if the fact Drew Locke could not beat him out was kind of a warning sign. And I think it's kind of like this, the same situation. Zach Wilson should be able to beat out the type of quarterback the Jets would be able to get. And if he can't, well, I think you have to look at your options. And ultimately, I think if you're trying to win games, the best quarterback on the roster should play. But, you know, I really don't like the NFL, how teams almost view having quarterback depth as a negative. And this is true in the media, too. It's like if any team tries to make sure it has insurance at quarterback, it's viewed as a, a bad thing. Like you're trying to undermine your, your your own quarterback. You should try and get as much quarterback talent as you can into your room. And I, I don't understand the the objections people have to improving your quarterback room and forcing guys to show that they're the best. Now ahead here on the Locked On Jets podcast, we'll close out our weekly mailbag. We'll talk about a couple of players who did not show much upside for the Jets in 2021. But before we get to that, I want to let you know about an incredible app everyone who buys gas needs to know about called Get Upside. My listeners are making cash back for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free GetUpside app in the App Store or Google Play right now and use promo code TOUCHDOWN for $0.25 cents per gallon or more on your first fill-up cash back. Don't pay full price at the pump anymore. Get cash back using GetUpside. Just download the app for free and use promo code TOUCHDOWN for $0.25 cents per gallon or more on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two dollars or $300 a year in cash back. And there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, or an e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code TOUCHDOWN to get $0.25 cents per gallon or more cash back on your first tank. Again, that's promo code TOUCHDOWN. And it would be a great idea to spend that cash back by buying some delicious Built Bars. Built Bar is the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. It's delicious. The bars are covered in 100% real chocolate. Most of them only have 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 grams of net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. And there are so many different flavors to choose from. You got coconut almond, peanut butter brownie, raspberry, cookies and cream, salted caramel, mint brownie, and many more. In fact, Built is always coming out with new limited time flavors. So check Built.com often to see what's new. These are absolutely delicious bars. I mean, these may be protein bars. They don't taste like them, though. They taste like candy bars. Go to Built.com and and use promo code LOCKED15 to get 15% off your order. Again, it's promo code LOCKED15. It's one word with no space. L-O-C-K-E-D, number one, number five, for 15% off at Built, B-U-I-L-T dot com. 
This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this Mailbag Wednesday. Our next question, John, you said nobody would have a problem when you named Alex Kessman as your team least valuable player in 2021. I, however, do take exception to this. Yes, Kessman was horrible. For one game, he was as bad as you can be. But as a guy who was at the Jets versus Eagles game, I can say with confidence we would have lost that game with Justin Tucker kicking. Even your favorite Eddie Pinheiro could not have saved us on that Sunday. On the other hand, Denzel Mims was a full five months of horribleness. Here's a guy the team invested considerable draft resources in, a guy who did relatively well his rookie year, a guy we were really counting on to be a key part of the offense. From the Salmon incident to not knowing the playbook to not getting on the field, Mims' season was a disaster. When he finally got out there, he committed pre-snap penalties on third downs and had horrible drops, including one in the end zone on a drive Zach needed to try to win a game. By season's end, Mims wasn't even getting targets over Jeff Smith and some guy named Tariq Black. In a season that saw every receiver get hurt, a season where the front office was determined to surround Zach with good players, Mims let down the team, his fans, his coaches, his quarterback, and even himself. Mims was so much less valuable than Kessman, to me it's not even close. Kessman was nearly a zero. Was nearly a zero. Mims was a significant net negative. Are you willing to concede that Mims was actually the team's least valuable player on today's podcast? So this goes back a few weeks. I gave Jets awards out, and I mentioned, I think correctly, that nobody could have an issue with Alex Kessman as the team's least valuable player. I guess somebody does have an issue with this. And my guess is that the Kessman family is listening to the podcast and sending in mailbag questions, because I don't see how you could question Alex Kessman as the team's least valuable player. Yes, Mims had a horrible season. There's no question about it. But Mims occasionally had a moment where he helped the team. Kessman did absolutely zero to help this team and did damage despite barely getting onto the... I mean, how do you get do so much damage when you barely even play for the team as Alex Kessman did? Mims at least had a few catches. He had a few plays where he threw a block. Kessman took the field six times and cost the Jets three points. I mean, what, what do you want to take him off the least valuable player list because he had one touchback and four kickoffs? It was a 25% touchback rate. The guy did nothing. Yeah, the reason he didn't hurt the Jets more was because he had to be cut. I mean, it's six six appearances on the field. He was so bad that it was a no-brainer he was had to be cut. Listen, you want to criticize Denzel Mims, feel free. Nothing you said about Denzel Mims this season was inaccurate. I'll offer a compromise. We can create a new award and name Mims, Mims the most disappointing player of the year. No problem with that. But Alex Kessman is the least valuable player by a mile. And by the way, let's not compare him to Eddie Pinheiro, my new favorite player. Eddie Pinheiro goes 8 for 8 on field goals. Okay, he missed an extra point, only 9 for 10 on extra points. Kessman's 0 for 2 on extra points. What are we comparing Eddie Pinheiro to Alex Kessman, the least valuable player by a mile? No, I will not concede Alex Kessman was not the least valuable. Alex Kessman was the least valuable player. He, He was the least valuable player by a mile. Denzel Mims was horrible this year, but he occasionally contributed something. Alex Kessman contributed zero to the team. When you cost the team three points in six appearances on the field as a kicker, and not only that, you make it so obvious that you need to be cut in six snaps, you are the least valuable player. We'll create a new award for Denzel Mims. Denzel Mims was horrible this year. Most disappointing player, you know, guy who did not come through when the team was counting on him. You Create your own award here. Least valuable player was Alex Kessman. Our next question, which Jurassic Park film is the second best in the franchise and why? 
Well, that's a tough one because, I mean, there's not really anything that's good beyond the first one. And, I, you know, I can't get over the fact they made a new Jurassic Park movie. I mean, this is just a monument to Hollywood greed, the fact that there's a new Jurassic Park movie coming out. I mean, come up with something creative. Come up with something people want to see. Don't just slap the Jurassic Park name onto another movie that you don't even care about. That last Jurassic World movie was one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It's one of two movies I've ever been to that I almost walked out of because it was so unbelievably bad. I guess if the if the question is what's the second best one, I might go with like the Jurassic World from 2015. Not that it was a great movie, but it was kind of interesting. You know, it was kind of a reboot of the franchise after 15 years away, and they had opened up the park. It was it was kind of an interesting concept, at least more interesting than the other ones. I mean. And I'm not even going to talk about the one where you had the dinosaur talking to the guy. Um, so I, I guess Jurassic World 2015, but please just stop making these movies. No more Jurassic World. We don't need another Jurassic World movie. Take the time and money and make something interesting. Make something unique. No more Jurassic Park. No more Jurassic Park movies, please. And our last question. Why does the NFL disadvantage the current class of prospects every year? I understand and accept that the worst teams get access to the best players, but do the seniors, as an introduction to the NFL at the Senior Bowl, also have to be subjected to the coaches who coach the teams with the worst record? Why not reward the coaches from teams with the best record that did not make the playoffs with that privilege? Well, you, you essentially answered it in the question. They're trying to give access to the worst teams in the NFL. I mean, the NFL is pretty much built to try and help the bad teams get good, and it's also built to... to prevent the good teams from staying good for too long. So it's a little extra access that you're giving to the worst teams in the NFL. And listen, at the end of the day, I understand that there are some really bad coaches in this league, but you're still getting NFL coaching. And it's only for one week. You know, the players that developed in college, the coaching that they receive in this week at the Senior Bowl, even if it's really bad coaching, is not really going to materially impact their careers. Their development was done by their college coaches and it will be done in the future by the team that drafts them. So, I mean, I don't think that they're really putting the players at a major disadvantage. I get the question, but I, I don't think it really puts the players at a major disadvantage having the worst coaches in the NFL coach them. And you also have to remember, most in many instances, these coaches who are in the Senior Bowl because their teams were bad, their teams, their teams were bad because they inherited a bad situation. I mean, it was. I know Robert Salah may not have had a great year, but... Is Robert Salad the reason the Jets were bad, or is it because he inherited a team that did not have a lot of talent and was just at the beginning of its rebuilding process? I think you could say the same thing about the, the Detroit coaches. They inherited a team that wasn't that good. Now, does this mean that the, the, the Detroit coaching staff and Salah's coaching staff with the Jets are going to turn out good? No, but I don't know that this season necessarily makes them bad. So, I mean, I don't think it's a major disadvantage, and I don't think it's necessarily a case where they're getting the worst coaches in the NFL. And even if they do, it's only for one week, not a week that's really going to play an appreciable role in their eventual development. That's all for today's show. Thank you for listening. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it and leave it a good review. Have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow to talk more Jets.